Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, my name is Emily Friedlander and you're listening to episode 10 of the Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors and friends to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. You guys all want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Anna Cogirado. I'm the news editor at Thump. Hi, I'm Dylan Riley. I'm the social media editor at Thump. And I'm Colin Joyce, the managing editor at Thump. Today, we'll be talking about a new series we kicked off this week with Tonic and other vice sites on drug use and harm reduction at festivals, along with an op-ed that Anna has coming out about why calling ecstasy-related deaths overdoses is something of a misnomer. Then we'll be chatting with Colin about his new story on Cashmere Cat. And finally, we'll have a little chat about Record Store Day, which just happened this past Saturday, and how the annual tradition has evolved over the past nine years. Today is special because it is our 10th episode and also Anna's last, at least with us here in this studio in New York. Yeah, I'm moving back to Europe, so you can all continue to make America great again without me. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do our best. (laughs) She'll still be dialing in, though, Yeah, and doing a lot of work probably about harm reduction, um, and drug use at festivals and clubs, which we'll be talking about later today. All right, so what have you guys been listening to this week? Dylan? So recently I've been listening to a CP called No from this band from Boston called Model Actress. They are like split between like LA and Boston. Like They go to Berklee College of Music. I saw them play basements a lot when I was still living in Boston. And I've been like hearing these songs for like a couple of years, and now it's nice to have recorded versions of them as opposed to like slamming around in like a sweaty basement. What are they like? They're like noisy post punk, but they have a kind of like a dance vibe to them too. Like a uh, the legacy of like Factory Records. Yeah, definitely. I think it sounds a lot like Factory stuff, and also a little bit like Curve that shoegaze band. Cool. I've been listening to a new release by a Welsh producer called Dawood. Not to be confused with Darude. It's spelled (laughs) spelled D-A-U-W-D. He's got his debut album coming out on the Ninja Tune imprint 
Technicolor. And I've been listening to him for quite a few years now. He's only sort of put out the odd release here and there. So this is his first full length. One of the tracks that's out at the moment is called Leitmotif. And it's super hazy, housey vibes. And it's like very textured and wonky and basically very introspective. Exactly what I just love listening to. And I'm also... I've been following him for a while now, so when you sort of see a debut release, you just, for an artist that you've been backing, you you just kind of like, you feel really happy to see that. Totally. Technicolor's been kind of killing it in general, too. They also yeah. have the Umfang album yeah. uh, coming out soon. Lots of good stuff in yeah. the Ninja and Tune the whole, sub-label. <laughs> exactly. The, well, the whole Ninja Tune family, I think, has sort of been doing, has been putting out some really great stuff recently. I've been listening to the new mini album, whatever you want to call it, from Carola's Coverdale. She's a Montreal-based ambient composer and organist, and she has a new thing called Graphs out on boomcat editions which is the like in-house label for the online retailer boomcat secretly home to some of the best music writing in the world if, if you ever read their product descriptions they're just like surprisingly deep for something like that but the careless coverdale release is like in the same vein of sort of twitchy ambient music that i've talked about a lot on the podcasts already it's definitely in line with the visible cloaks album that came out earlier this year and she's worked with people like tim hecker and lxv people that do really detailed things with ambient music like it's not just like a single sustained note but people making stillness out of chaos basically and i think that her newest thing is definitely her best in that vein there's just a lot of movement happening and it still feels really peaceful what i've been listening to this week is kind of the opposite of making stillness out of chaos i'm actually just getting to know it but yesterday we put up an album stream um, of ryuchi sakamoto's new record and i mean obviously he's had like a really varied career with yellow magic orchestra and decades of solo work but i feel like my favorite thing about him is this sort of perfect amount of negative space around his compositions like he's just so simple and melodic in a way that isn't too schmaltzy but is also sure. like really endearing and moving and um like my favorite I mean, this is probably a lot of people's favorite thing he's done, but he did the score for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which was a film that involved David Bowie about four men at like a Japanese military prison around the Second World War. It's just this beautiful kind of Christmassy, I guess, like uh, piano theme um, and it's it's just, I don't know, it just speaks to me a lot. And the new album has other stuff going on, but it also has a lot of beautiful piano work in it, which I love. And even when he's doing stuff with like electronics, it still feels very spacious. For sure. I've noticed that like he almost has this pattern and that maybe the, it's thrown off because of this is his first in eight years where he was kind of alternating between making records that were more electronically based and more than records that were more straight up piano. Where does this fall on that spectrum? Because I actually haven't heard it yet. I think it's like... In the middle. Oh, cool. It's, it seems in the middle. That's yeah. awesome. Some of my favorite things that he's, he's done are like right in the middle of that, but it's often him working with electronic producers. Like um, he had a couple records with Finesse that I like absolutely love, but it's it's Sakamoto playing piano and then Finesse processing it um, mm. over the top. And I think that that's some of the best stuff that he's done. So that, that makes me happy that it's in the middle of those things. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And I know that there's like a sort of... 
epic backstory behind it as well, involving his own personal struggle with an illness. He was battling cancer for the last few years. Which he recovered from, and then also the Japanese earthquake in 2011. Um, So sort of this calamitous circumstances out of which this album arose. He's always had a good way of uh, relating melancholy in a way that, as he said, doesn't feel schmaltzy. It just like, there's just like a total stillness to his piano pieces. We are going to be talking about a new series we kicked off just yesterday about drug use at festivals and other areas of nightlife and harm reduction. We had a harm reduction-centric podcast a bit ago where we invited two people from different harm reduction groups to talk about some of the issues around keeping people safe at festivals. So yesterday we launched this cool survey out of Canada that was taking a look at people's drug practices and harm reduction measures they practice themselves and what their familiarity with the harm reduction movement was, such as do they feel safe approaching paramedics or medical tents when something is going wrong. So Anna, who is her, it is her last (laughs) week, as I mentioned before, um, is going to uh, leave us with some really sage advice about something that the media, she says, is doing kind of wrong a lot when reporting ecstasy-related deaths. We kicked off this series about harm reduction, which is such an important issue, especially now as we're approaching the festival season. And the piece that I have been working on has been about how the media should be more responsible in how it reports on drug fatalities, and in particular when they involve ecstasy, otherwise known as MDMA. The narrative that we usually see play out in the media when there has been a fatality is it's labeled as an overdose and it's very sensationalized. It's very emotional. Of course it is. Um, Is that like across the board? Like most publications will report it that way? I think some publications are better than others. I'm not going to name names, but there are some publications which otherwise are very reputable and will report on sensitive issues very well, but for one reason or another, they seem to keep getting it wrong when you're talking specifically about ecstasy-related deaths. One of the really interesting things is that of all of the drug-related deaths in the US, ecstasy deaths are one of the lowest. The Center for Disease Control records the data. And there are, in 2015, which is the the year with the most recently available data, there were over 50,000 drug-related deaths overall. They don't actually record ecstasy-related deaths because they are so small, but it's estimated to only be about 50 a year. But these are the deaths that attract so much media attention, usually because the victims are young. These events happen in kind of like a fun-loving environment, and it feels, you know, it's sort of portrayed as they were sort of like ripped from the prime of life kind of thing. But specifically the issue with using the word overdose, it can be a bit misleading because... 
An overdose is taking taking more than you should have of a substance for kind of toxic to sort of like with toxic results. And when you're talking about any illicit substance, there isn't really an official dose. So sort of using that word generally is quite problematic because it almost doesn't really make sense. And specifically with ecstasy, although there is no regulated dose, harm reduction experts have kind of agreed that a quote-unquote recreational dose is somewhere between 75 and 100 milligrams however the problem is that the nature of mdma is that you can take something within that range and you can still have a really bad reaction there have been cases where fatalities have happened and that's because of the fact that the way that mdma interacts with your environment and with the person ranges so wildly so actually the most common cause of death in ecstasy related situations is actually heat stroke and that's because MDMA raises the body temperature and it can inhibit the body's ability to regulate your temperature. So coupled with a festival environment where you might be dancing, you might not be hydrating yourself properly, you're basically, it's not causing heat stroke, but it's increasing your risk of heat stroke. And so then just using the word overdose, it kind of like detracts from all of that information and it doesn't help anybody understand what the real dangers are. And, you know, some of the harm reduction experts I spoke to for this piece, they also pointed out that this sort of incorrect or slightly inaccurate reporting is part of a wider issue with how people, with the language that people use when talking about drug use and also how it is reported on in the media. You can sort of stray into territory which is inaccurate and even worse, you can start dehumanizing the situation. So you should never use words like junkie or zombies or pillheads because that just kind of totally dehumanizes the person who this happened to. And it just steers the conversation further away from harm reduction, which is basically that you have to accept whether it's illegal or not, people are going to take drugs and you just need to help them minimize the risk. Of course, like nothing you can do is ever going to be totally safe, but there are things that you can do to minimize those risks. And the media basically needs to play a more responsible role in helping to deliver those messages and just like being more accurate with with their reporting. Can you overdose on ecstasy? Yeah, you can definitely take too much and then that's going to have negative impacts on your body and like all of the functions that your body needs to do. One of the dangers that's happening at the moment is that the tablets themselves and also the powder has an increased strength. So the advice at the moment, this is especially true in the UK where there have been studies that have found that the strength of the MDMA tablets on the market increased in the past few years. So the harm reduction recommendation is that if you have a pill, you basically take a quarter of it to start with and see what happens. And if you have powder, you crush it up and you take a really small amount. But um, yeah, so this is sort of like going back to the issue that the problem is though you can basically take a quarter of a pill and you can get heat stroke or various other complications and of course this doesn't take into account anything that these tablets or powders have been cut with so that's sort of the other big issue with referring to something as an overdose because actually perhaps there was something else in that powder or in that tablet and that's really what created the adverse reaction and so calling an overdose kind of like detracts from the fact that you have a contaminated substance because you have an unregulated drug market and because there's no way to sort of quality control what you're taking. It seems like the problem's like systemic almost. Like as a society, we have a limited understanding of this issue and therefore we use language that's limited, which makes us have a limited understanding of it. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, 
we all work in the media and we know how it is you know it's it's so much easier to just write overdose than it is to say drug related death or to kind of get into the weeds about really what happened and to break it down journalists tend to use the simplest language and try to kind of like convey the point in it as few words as possible and this is true of kind of any health reporting that you sort of can cut corners and you can miss out really big chunks of, of important information sometimes in stories i've worked on you find out that the person died not because of what they had ingested but because they ran into the street and yeah. got like hit by a car yeah and then that's still reported as like a drug death exactly kind of complicated yeah exactly because you know the the substance that you're on or the mix of substances that you're on may have caused you to do something that you perhaps otherwise wouldn't have done something that's very very dangerous and so yeah is that is that you know is that an overdose? No, it's that you've taken something and it's it's sort of like had this chain reaction. One of the tenets of harm reduction is that you should try to always use the buddy system, which is basically like staying with at least one very trusted friend with you mm -hmm. if you're taking any substances. And this is also true of alcohol, just to kind of look out for each other. What were some other self-harm reduction measures that we mentioned? Using the buddy system, uh, which is, as I said, basically just being with good friends who you trust. And if something goes wrong, you guys will look out for each other and you will get medical help if you need it. There's this phrase, start low and go slow. So mm -hmm. crush up your powder, take a really small amount, cut the pill up pretty, you know, into quarters and wait a couple of hours to see if there's any effect and then increase if you feel like you really need to. But basically sort of you can you can go up, but you can't go down. And the other big one is to keep hydrated. And this one actually with MDMA is a bit complicated because there is a danger that you can drink too much water. So the advice is to drink water, but also try to drink electrolytes. So like sports drinks like Gatorade to just keep the kind of like salt and water balance right in your body. And yeah, do your research as much as possible. So look on harm reduction websites like Dance Safe, just to kind of like understand what it is that you're taking and understand what the possible effects are so you can have that knowledge before you get into this. I know another one is just not being afraid to approach the health tent if something goes wrong. A lot of people, because drugs are criminalized in the United States, a lot of people yeah. are too afraid to yeah. go yeah. To the, the paramedics. Yeah. And you should always, if you even think you need, need medical attention, you should go and get medical attention. The patient confidentiality rules mean that they can't tell the authorities. And if you take a friend, you also will not get in trouble. And I think having covered this for a while, that is really the biggest threat in all of this, that people just are too scared because they think they're going to get in trouble. They won't. And you should always seek medical advice uh, you should always seek medical attention and medical help if you or a friend are in danger because the situation could escalate and have really, really dire consequences and it's just not worth it. Like, you, you won't get in trouble. We are ready to move on to our next topic of discussion, which is a story that we literally just clicked live on. Hot prior, off of the digital presses. Yeah, prior to getting here, which is uh, Colin's digital cover on Cashmere Cat. So Colin, you flew out to LA to meet him. What did you find when you got there? Should I start with some basic background on who he is? Or, or do we assume that the discerning Thump podcast listener has a working knowledge? I think we should also mention the striking similarity 
intimacy between the writer and the subject matter of the oh, story. Oh, sure. Okay, so, so, so maybe I'll start with the very first thing that he said to me. It was I got there and um, his publicist let me into the house where he lives, which is uh, owned by Benny Blanco, who's also a producer. So his publicist lets me in and he's like, Magnus is in the shower, he's going to be out in a second. And he comes out. And he looks at me and he's like, we're the same person. That was the very first thing they said. So I didn't put that in the story because it seems self-indulgent. But we, yes, we do look alike. So yeah, so uh, Magnus August Hoiberg is the name of the producer that's best known as Cashmere Cat. He's been making music under that name for like six years. First doing this sort of spacey instrumental electronic music that was inspired by R&B and Jersey Club. And the, at least the dynamics of EDM at that time, like he wanted to make something that was soft, he said. It definitely has the same sort of rise and fall, even if it's less formulaic. Related to that, I was at Benny Blanco's house. Benny heard one of his early remixes and decided I'm going to call him and fly him to LA. And pretty much since that day, they've lived either with or near each other. And Magnus has gotten pulled into a lot of the pop sessions that Benny's done. That started pretty much immediately. Uh, Benny told me a really funny anecdote about being in a session with Rick Ross that he had brought Magnus to. And he went to the bathroom and he saw Magnus in there and he was splashing water in his face. And he was like, I'm, I'm so starstruck. You didn't tell me DJ Khaled was going to be here. <laughs> um, which I, I thought was so heartwarming. And yeah, so since then, uh, Magnus has gotten a lot of work with actual pop stars. He's produced for Ariana Grande. Britney Spears. Britney Spears, yes. Ludacris. Ludacris. Basically, everybody that you can think of. He's done a song with Kanye West Wolves from uh, The Life of Pablo. Did a bunch of production work on The Weeknd's album. And he brings that sort of like weird, spacey electronic music into these songs that are legitimately played on the radio. Him and Benny uh, just have this sense of wanting to knock pop music off balance a little bit it seems like while also still making things that resonate like especially benny um magnus told me something else that didn't end up in the story which was that like anytime he's in an uber with benny one of benny's songs comes on um which i mean he's produced for maroon 5 and ed sheeran and kesha so it makes sense that that would happen um he was nominated for a Grammy too, Yes, right? uh, both Benny and Magnus were nominated for a Grammy this past year for their work on Tory Lane's song Love, that's L-U-V. There's a great picture of them on the Grammys red carpet together where Benny is wearing this like shiny paisley tuxedo and it's holding hands with Magnus and Magnus is wearing a long gray hoodie and camo joggers and a pair of Converse on the Grammys red carpet, which is almost identical to the outfit that I saw him wear. (laughs) It it should be noted. Uh, Same hat and everything. He's uh, dedicated to comfort, I guess. I guess the reason that I went out there was that he has this new album coming out on Friday. It's his debut full length called Nine. And it's the first solo thing that he's done that brings the work of that production into the like weird electronic realms that he's usually orbiting in. So there's guest spots on the album from Ariana Grande and Selena Gomez and Camila Cabello, formerly of Fifth Harmony. Ty Dolla Sign makes an appearance, The Weeknd. It's just like all of the people that he produced for and a couple of others. He's, it's almost like he's called in the favor to come onto his album. 
And because he has such like a dedication to doing weird things with his own music, like Benny says, he'll like take the sound of a coin dropping and turn it into a harp or things like that. There's a moment on the album where he turns the bark of one of Benny's dogs into a drum hit because he's willing to do things like that with singers like the singers that he uses. It ends up feeling like this weird alternate reality version of pop music. Like you recognize the voice, but there's just something really strange happening. And I I think that that's really cool. It's like, He actually had a song a while ago from one of his early EPs in one of the Grand Theft Auto games, like on the, I don't know if you guys know about that, but they have like radio stations within the games. Um, So I I kind of envision his new album almost being like that sort of soundtrack for like a, like a hyper heightened version of Los Angeles. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I was sort of wondering, like, obviously more experimental producers working on pop songs has been the narrative of music for the last few years. Yeah, um, especially around people like Kanye bringing people into the studio. Yeah, and you know, and if you saw like Chairlift just published his interview with Pitchfork about yeah. how they were, well, they had their last show and mm-hmm. they're kind of ending as a band, but they were definitely early example of these sorts of indie, more experimental artists being swept up into more right. pop Car- realms. Caroline Polachek had a writing credit on Beyonce's self-titled album. Yeah. And I feel like that's sort of part of the same thrust we see with a lot of artists, even Hudson Mohawk, who's mentioned several times in the story sure. and also got his start with like the DMCs. Hudson was working with, uh, was it Kanye? Yeah, Kanye. Um and so I'm just wondering sort of like what sets what Cashmere Cat has done apart from everybody else. And I think you gave a really good answer in your story, but I just wanted to have right. you repeat it. <laughs> yeah. In a world where Sophie can produce for Madonna, that this is like a thing that, that can happen. But I think that what Cashmere Cat's done on this album specifically is kind of like the opposite gesture of a experimental producer going on to a pop singer's song, which he's done capably and very, very impressively many times. He's instead dragging these pop singers into his world, forcing them to contort around his weird beats and strange squeaking noises and clanging metal sounds that occasionally pop up. And he bends them to to what he wants instead of doing the opposite. There was a line that I think got cut in this in the edit that I like. You said like, experimental electronic heads and poptimists might not be wholly comfortable with this album. Yeah, it it exists in this really cool and weird middle ground where I've had a lot of struggles showing my friends some of the singles from this album because either they're like, this is too weird to be a pop single or this is not weird enough to be an experimental single. But I'm really interested in seeing those two worlds like really butt up against one another. And this is like... Uh, you see it happen occasionally, but this is, has to be the only album that features Evie and Christ and Camilla Cabello. Like, there's just like no no way that would ever happen. And it's cool that there's someone that can facilitate that. What should people look forward to in the story as far as just meeting Cashmere Cat, the guy? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this was his first ever in-person interview in English. He's done a couple or at least one in his native Norwegian. But because of that, I think that people have this reputation, people have this understanding of him being really shy and reserved, which is maybe accurate at a certain point in his career, but that's absolutely not the experience that I had with him being out there. He was just like really 
goofy and gregarious. Like one of the first things that he said to me, aside from saying that we were the same person, was he asked me if I believed that the world could be a simulation, which uh, was before I'd had my coffee on that early <laughs> uh, LA morning. And uh, interestingly enough, he asked the same question of the photographer a few hours later when she showed up. <laughs> yeah, he's just a really goofy guy uh, in a incredibly endearing way and i that's the thing that i'm most happy about communicating in the piece i think is that pop producers in general have this and and especially magnus have have this reputation of being kind of cloistered like in their own rooms like away from the world and that is definitely like a side of him but he's also like really stoked to see a golden retriever laying in the sun as we walk down the street like i don't know he's just like a person and i i I think that through both his own discomfort early in in his career and just like the way that the music press latches onto quasi-anonymous figures there's this mythos around him that doesn't correspond with the reality of being in a room with him Mm -hmm. so yeah check out colin's cashmere cat story it has really great photos from kate opperman that very much capture the L.A. sun vibe of his daily life and just of what Colin's been describing about him being kind of a playful, goofy character. So the final thing I wanted to talk about today was Record Store Day. Everyone's favorite holiday. Everybody's favorite music-centric holiday. (laughs) The holiday of music. Yeah, music's biggest day. Yeah. Um, Or recorded music's biggest day, which will only excite certain people. Record Store Day was on Saturday. It was the ninth Record Store Day, I believe, Mm -hmm. in a row. It was conceived 10 years ago. (sighs) Who here went to Record Store Day? I did. Just Dylan. I, I did as well. Oh, wow. Elaine and I did. I found myself in, in rough trade in Williamsburg. <laughs> I was I'm not there. really sure yeah. why. <laughs> Wait, you were both, did I you was, see each I other? I did, we did not <laughs> see each other, but I was there. I found myself outside Record Grouch on Manhattan Avenue in Greenpoint talking to a friend who had just gone for Record Store Day. And I saw the crowds inside the record store and was like, uh, I don't know about going in right now. So I'm, I'm especially interested in Rough Trade, the experience of Rough Trade on Record Store Day, because as big an empire as they are, as a multinational record store company, they seem to have like the most gain from something like that. What was it like <laughs> being there? I should say I was there. I had a friend visiting, so we we're kind of doing like touristy things. We got there and there's this like big line on the other side of the street. It was like, if you wanted to just like look through the regular records or like they had some bands playing too for like a free show inside you could just walk in but if you wanted to look at like the record store day exclusive ones you had to like wait in this line and get a wristband and then there was like another line to look at the things and like people had been there since like 11 o'clock the previous night and like it camped out that's so upsetting yeah (laughs) i don't know why the the mix of people was also in that line was very interesting because as a british person i was obviously immediately drawn to the queue um and had to find out what it was for i didn't go i didn't stand in it i I also was just passing through I, i sort of hadn't really planned to go to um, to rough trade but the mix of people in the line was super interesting it was all ages a lot of older people there actually as well I really should have gone and asked them you know what they were hoping to um, to find but yeah they all look very determined very serious to be in this to be in this queue whereas the other people sort of milling around I guess they just kind of wanted to be like me just kind of 
found themselves there and just wanted to see what the fuss was about. But as someone who um, don't really buy records because I don't listen to vinyl, so I kind of just like potted around and then and then left. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I said, I was there um, mostly because friends wanted to go. But I mean, I checked out some of the bands like hanging around. A couple people were in like in line, but like the lines too were like even if you weren't doing like the exclusive titles were like wild, like snaking around like the various displays like you were if you like wanted to get a record you were going to be in line for like a half hour but was this for special record store day releases or just general all of it music they didn't have like a separate register too you think like you make you wait in this line you think they'd have like a separate thing and they they didn't get to wait in this like huge line with everyone else so it's it's sort of of, so it's sort of like for the rest of the year they don't think that they should go to record stores. That's that's sort of what it feels like exactly that's exactly what it felt like because actually I think something like crate digging and also to a certain extent I guess like book shopping to me it's such a personal thing you go by yourself and you kind of get lost in all of the titles and all of the records and there are sort of groups of people who are either sort of doing I think like what both of us were doing you know basically being tourists um, and it's, I don't know, it, it, it feels, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't really feel like how you would actually buy records and how you would sort of actually participate in this kind of thing. For sure, yeah, it doesn't resonate. I, I've been many, I didn't go this year, um, mostly because I was hard at work on my Cashmere Cat story. <laughs> but uh, also, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, as someone who spends a lot of money and a lot of time in record, cho- yeah. record stores, I like wasn't interested in battling that rush and haven't been for a couple of years now, even if, even if I've done it to like see bands or like hang out with friends. I think that there's a, there's an appeal to that. I recognize that I, I'm not like the normal consumer in that way. I think that anything that gets people into the, these stores is like really mm. cool and important. Like uh, even if it means a 30 minute line at Rough Trade, I think that that's like a good thing for the industry as a whole. I mean, so often I'm in a record store that I love and it's the the solitary experience that you describe, mm-hmm. like, which is a really good thing for how I personally want to go through records, but it can't be good for the bottom line that I'm always the only person in the record store in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The guy's like, oh, I, I haven't fixed my air conditioning yet. Do you want a beer? And it's like, well, that's a really cool one-on-one interaction <laughs> and I love that. But also I wish you had enough money to fix your air conditioning, like for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it, so it is actually the highest grossing day for record oh, sales. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure how it breaks down because Record Store Day has also started. I'm not sure when, but it's been ongoing since I was in high school. A Record Store Day Black Friday thing where they also have a bunch of exclusive releases. And it's the same organization that kind of collates all of them. So I would suspect that that's pretty high up there, too, because it's just a big shopping day in general. But right. But this has, yeah, this has to be it. I'm friends with some like record store owners on Facebook and, and follow them on Twitter. And there were a couple that were like, look, I understand why you shit talk this day as like record buyers. Like it's not like fun for us. Like <laughs> it's, it's not like what we want to do either, but it like lets us stay in business. So it's not, I want to say necessary evil, but it's not even evil because like people, it's just like people are stoked about buying records. And that's like a cool thing, except for like people that are buying a Space Jam picture disc to flip it on ebay the next day fuck those people yeah like the big one this year was uh toto's africa was a picture disc and i was like my friends that were like half excited about it like ironically excited about it it's like no one's actually like itching to buy this record to listen to it i think that that's the legitimate criticism that gets leveled at record store day most often and shows up in a piece that our uk team published is that like all of these exclusives that are like 
represses of like Fleetwood Mac's Tusk for like the 10th time end up clogging up the like distribution pipeline of which there are incredibly few throughout the world. There's just not enough pressing plants for the demand of, of vinyl and Record Store Day clogs that up with these releases that are making people money. But I mean, I'd rather have another techno 12 inch or something. I don't know. Yeah. Or literally anything else, <laughs> like whatever the stupid thing was, but yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of someone who like is spending even less time in record stores, and I'm more likely to buy records on like merch tables. Oh sure. Than I am. And I mean, that's just like the way I'm. I've my I engage with music now, but I agree that like for the most part, it's a good thing, and I should probably stop being so negative about it. But at the same time, like watching people with arms full of records of like stuff that they're probably not going to listen to it's kind of an odd scene sometimes it really feels like black friday yeah like it's like exactly people clamor clamoring over one another i remember one year in back in tampa i went to our local record store that gets you know two copies of whatever exclusive title and people are legitimately lined up at eight in the morning and they're passing out coffee because half the people are there are, the, are like like high school kids that are really stoked to be able to snag like some exclusive Ariel Pink 12 inch. And then there's just like old dudes that are very, very clearly putting it on Discogs right as they get home. And it's just like, <laughs> And speaking ugh. of Discogs, something I also wonder is whether it's still relevant to focus so much on brick and mortar store sales uh, for these record stores, if that makes sense. Like when you walk into most record stores now there's like a big sign for here is our discogs profile yeah. and like you can buy the stuff on discogs and sometimes i get the feeling that maybe they do some of their best business on discogs for sure so i wonder if the record store day initiative should also be like an online initiative i think that it, it is for some retailers i think that rough trade might sell some of their exclusives online i'm not 100 percent sure but i feel like that's definitely been something that they've experimented with yeah, the phenomenon of record stores having Discogs is a really interesting one to me, especially Human Head here in Brooklyn. A friend of mine tells me that he often will sit at home browsing Human Head's Discogs page and then go in the store and buy it because he realizes that he can buy it cheaper like in person. But, Without shipping? Yeah, but he can browse at home. And I think that's a nice service wow. that they can provide. <laughs> it's just surreal to me to see those signs because the record store is such an experience in itself. Sure. You know, it's more than just a destination for buying records, or at least it was historically. Yeah, I mean, I've leg me. legitimately made friends through going to record stores. Like, even going to, uh, I, I mean, Rough Trade is very close to our office. So, like, despite my scoffing, I, I go there often, at least a couple times a month. And I've made, like, a, like a legitimately good friend from going to Rough Trade and, like, asking for recommendations. With and, a clerk? Yeah, with a clerk there. And I don't know, that that's just, like... Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a nostalgic thing to like say like I like going to record stores, but like it's just a there are only so many places that we can congregate as people who really like music that don't involve dark, loud rooms with alcohol in our hands. Mm. Also, the rough trade here in Williamsburg is so great for that because it has the space at the back for gigs, and it has a little coffee shop, and it has that photo. It's a fun place to hang out. I mean, no shade. It's where I saw Craig David, one of the, the best the best gigs I've ever seen in New York. So, I miss working at record stores and having these regulars who tended to be like middle aged dudes, like come in and just hang out by the side of the counter for hours. Yeah, <laughs> and they weren't like a friend, but they were like a special kind of uh, 
record store friend. Yeah. That was very endearing. Um, I just wanted to mm-hmm. shout out uh, the Space Jam blue and black Starburst vinyl that came out this year on Records Today. There are already two copies on Discogs for $95. So um, that's the state of things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's to be expected, I think. You've been listening to the Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits the podcast. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website at thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Where should people follow your stories, Anna? I'm at Anacod on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as well at, at DillyDill26. And I'm on Twitter at OutaSightOuta. I'm on Twitter at AdHocEmily. If you'd like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help, but word of mouth is the only way that we get this out there. Have a good day. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.